as we go to our scripture for tonight from the book of Philippians. If you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And as you're turning, I want to remind you that you all need to drag out your baseball caps and get ready to go to the ball game on Friday night with the Bay Bears. Uh, five bucks a ticket, you can't beat a price like that. Fireworks afterwards, which are exceptional. And it is a sweet time of fellowship together. So I hope you all will join me. I threw out the first pitch last year, and if you missed that, <laughs> too bad for you. Not going to be happening again. Um, I got it home one time, and that was enough. Don't want to risk the humility again, but would love to have you join us. It's going to be a very special night, 7 o'clock. Tickets are available on our website. And if that's a problem for you or the whole electronic thing is just too much of a pain, no problem, call us. We're happy to walk through that with you, and we'll make sure to get that taken care of. You can call Diane or myself, Stephen, even Tom, and we'd be happy to help and get you those tickets. All right, we come uh, to Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9 tonight. Philippians 4 and 1 to 9. And we started this great text a couple weeks ago, last week taking a break for our Awana uh, concluding ceremonies. And we introduced the chapter by that strong conjunction, therefore, at the beginning of verse 1. And we talked about how really it is more, uh, or, or more properly translated as wherefore. Because it really encompasses everything that's happened before in all of the previous three chapters of the book. We talked about all of those connections and I'll refer you back to that message if you would like to see some of those particulars. But because of that connection, we've titled our message, The Beginning of the End. And this is sort of The Beginning of the End Part 2. Last week we looked at the first three verses and we had two points in those first three verses. I'll repeat those for you in case you'd like to kind of have them because this will just be a running total. We had points one and two two weeks ago. We'll have points three, four, and five tonight. So point one of our message from two weeks ago was a perfect introduction it was a perfect introduction in verse 1. And it was perfect in its connectivity and in its introductory message. It, shows, it showed Paul's great care for this great church. And we've talked about and we've seen repeatedly throughout the introductory chapters what a great church this is. How amazing their testimony is and how faithful they are. And it, it is a delight for us to study it's a delight for me to preach through this book because it is such a powerhouse of the way a new testament church is to look and it's perfect application just by reading it because this is who we need to be in many ways this is how we are needing to excel still more as did the church at thessalonica but nonetheless it is a great picture of a great church we saw him start out and show his love for this church by calling them the beloved brethren and this his heart attitude just pouring out for his love for this church in philippi we saw also that he longed to see them. There was just this earnest desire to get back. Paul had established churches throughout Asia Minor. 
uh, if we were doing a count of those churches, it would be in the 20s. And those are just the ones we know about. There may well have been other churches, but this was the one. This was the one he longed for. This was his desire and his delight. And, and I think we all understand that. You know, we are in a very mobile society and day and age, and we have the privilege of taking vacations. And, uh, you know, much as I want to, you know, require that all of you take your vacations from Monday to Saturday, sometimes it doesn't happen that way, and you're gone on a Sunday. And I trust that when you are, and when you go to church somewhere else, that you delight to be with the Lord's people wherever you are. But there's nothing like home, is there? You know, there's nothing like being here with these people. And that's what Paul recognized. And this is such a powerful understanding. And why he called them this. And why he longed to see them. And why they were further his joy and his crown. This was, this was the pinnacle. This is it. This is what he was delighting in. This is a body of believers that were flourishing in Christ. This is what every pastor wants. We want to see our people with a tremendous zeal for Christ, ever growing, coming and, and talking about the messages with us, further interacting, pursuing additional resources, being good Bereans and growing in their love, in their edification within the body, in their ministry, in the one and others of the church, and carrying it out to the community around them. And this is what they're doing. And he told them by way of exhortation at the end of that to stand firm. So our first point was this perfect introduction. Our second point in verses 2 to 3 was a particular intercession. And here we saw Paul point out two women with a problem. That was problem was causing a division. It was causing a deterioration of the church's testimony. And it's a reminder to us that no problem within the body is a small problem. We are to be a body. There's no problem within our body that is a small problem. I got, and I know if, you, if you've all got some tissue, you can rush it up after I tell this story. I had um, a thorn in my finger right here in the knuckle from working in the yard. And it's been there for about a week. And you know, you're figuring that it's a splinter. It's just going to come on out. I didn't even whine to my wife about it. So look what a big boy I am. And um, it had been there for about two weeks. And I just kept kind of touching it. Because it's right on the inside of my index finger. And it just kind of, ow. You know, ow. And it, it just, it's one of those things that although it was a, a tiny little piece of a thorn, it just kept bugging me. There's no interactions within our body. If there's somebody that's just, just bugging us a little, they were just really not getting along with it, and so we're just going to kind of, I'm just going to try and not use that finger. It doesn't work very well. I kind of need that. Well, what if it was this finger? It's the same thing. What if it was a toe? It doesn't matter. And we are the body. And the vital nature is that there has to be a harmony. There has to be a unity. And there can't be a separation because there are no little issues. There are no little issues. I did take my tweezers, my fingernail clippers, and I just chopped that thing out today, so I'm all good. But nonetheless... I know, it was the perfect way to approach it, right? But we can't do that with our body. We need to get along, and, that, and this was a big problem. So this was Paul's exhortation of a need for a particular intercession for these two women to get their act together. So we had a perfect introduction and a particular intercession. 
And so from these, we launch into the second part of this text, the this beginning of the end, part two, if you will. So let me read our first nine verses, even though we've begun into this. This is a unit for one to nine, and let's talk about all of it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Judea and I urge Synthke, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The beginning of the end. Verse 4 becomes our first point of the night and the third so far, as I've mentioned, I've titled this, A Prescriptive Imposition. A Prescriptive Imposition, here in verse 4. This is a simple and powerful verse. It has four parts to it. So our third point, A Prescriptive Imposition, has four parts. And the first is the command to rejoice. It comes from the Greek word kara. We know it from the English name Kara, or Kara, depending on how it's pronounced, which means joy. So that is the root of this particular word. There are a couple of other associated words with it for our Greek lesson for today. Instead of Kara, we have Charis. This is another woman's name that we're familiar with. And Charis means grace. Charis means grace. There is another Similar name, and it's called Karen, and it means favor. So the one who marries such a Karen is highly favored. And indeed, I am abundantly favored, even if she shakes her head. But the joy of Kara is rejoicing, and, and the rejoicing is, an, is a verb which is called Kero. So these two words, joy and rejoicing, are repeatedly used throughout the book of Philippians. We see them in combination 16 times in these short four chapters. Actually, 17 times in the Greek text. But in our English text, basically, we will see this 16 times. And this joy and rejoicing is talking about being happy. It's, it's having an attitude of gladness. It is a lightness of heart or step. And we all understand it. We understand the difference between being light and happy and being heavy or depressed. 
And that's not how we're to be here. He's telling us instead that we are to rejoice. And it is a, a critical command that he brings. It isn't just a, a standard verb, but it is an imperative verb that tells us that we are to do this. And not only that, it's repeated at the end of the verse. So that gives it tremendous emphasis. This is one of the few verses in our English Bible that reads exactly the same as the Greek Bible. It is a word-for-word transliteration of the Greek text. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That is exactly the pattern of the Greek text. And interestingly, and I can't think of anywhere else, where three of our major translations are identical on this particular verse. Usually they switch something around a little bit. We'll talk about one of those switch arounds as we move on uh, a little later. But it shows us a great representation. And this is what we want to know. We want to see the emphasis that the writer is bringing to us. And this is why I love the New American Standard Text. Because it most accurately reflects the components of the Greek text. And therein it brings us a closer understanding of the author's original intent. So the, the first of these four parts is the command to rejoice. Then the second is who we are to rejoice in. Now, many people can participate in rejoicing. But it is a wholly different thing to rejoice in the Lord. There's a distinction between rejoicing in that which is of the world, or which we might term as profane, not sacred, and rejoicing in the things that are divine, that are of God. And that distinction comes out clearly in this verse. You see, the rejoicing is in the Lord. It's not a function of the circumstances, which leads us then to the third point of this sentence. We've seen the what, which is to rejoice. We've seen the who in the Lord. And thirdly, the when is always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, if we think of anything outside of the sacred realm, anything outside of God, there's nothing else by which this command can be filled. You can't rejoice always in anything outside of the Lord. Because he's the only thing that doesn't change. We can rejoice in being at a wedding. What a wonderful time. We can rejoice in being on vacation. We can rejoice if we're at a party. Sometimes not as we should biblically, and many don't. But we understand the idea of rejoicing, and the whole world understands rejoicing. But they can't rejoice always. Only in the Lord can we rejoice always. Because he is an unchanging, perfect provision for us. And this is going to set the stage for our entire text. Is the importance of realizing that in Christ we can rejoice completely. And apart from him, the only rejoicing that happens is temporary. Because the source of rejoicing changes. The fourth part we've already alluded to, and it is the repeated command to rejoice at the end of the verse. Again, I will say rejoice. 
Now, here's one of the distinctions that the New International Version makes, and I'm not beating up on the the NIV. I know many people use different versions for different reasons. Some like the study Bible uh, versus another study Bible that uh, may be available. But in in the New International Version, instead of saying rejoice in the Lord always, And then again, I will say rejoice. The last phrase reads, I will say again, rejoice. Think about the difference. It's minor, but it's not minor. If we say, as the New International Version does, I will say again, rejoice. That doesn't necessarily have a huge impact. Okay, the again loses a little bit of its emphasis when it's placed further on in the sentence. I will say again, rejoice. We hear teachers make that kind of statement. It almost can sound like a didactic, repeated statement trying to give emphasis. But if we put it at the beginning of the statement, again, I will say rejoice, in any way you want to put your emphasis on it, it's going to have a much bigger impact. And that's what Paul is trying to show us. Because he's just commanded us to rejoice at the beginning of the verse. And that was a present tense imperative verb which means rejoice now y'all rejoice now all y'all rejoice now it is a second person plural imperative verb which means all of the church is commanded to be rejoicing in present time but then he says it again again i will say and he puts a future tense on it i will say rejoice Here's this emphatic element that is impossible for us to duplicate in English to say, you must be rejoicing. We talked a little bit about it on Sunday and the importance of our countenance being lifted up and not having the Eeyore mentality. You can't be rejoicing and be kind of walking around like, oh, yes, okay. Right, and we all know that. Husbands and wives, as you interact with one another, we immediately know whether one another is maybe not quite on top of things, right? I was a little tired coming home from work and getting ready for dinner tonight, and we were sitting at the table, and Karen goes, is everything all right? And it was, but obviously I was not expressing an attitude of rejoicing, an attitude of joy. I was just kind of, kind of flatlined. And that's not what the book tells us it tells us that we are to be rejoicing always again this double imperative verb is extremely powerful and it reminds us of the heart attitude of ephesians uh, another wonderful book in a few chapters in ephesians excuse me a few verses in ephesians 5 ephesians 5 19 to 20 which also is repeated in Colossians in similar form, how we are to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. This is how we're to communicate. You know, when I come and I get a chance to to talk with Carol about a, a piece of Scripture, I need to be singing to her. I won't do that to you. But that's the attitude of our heart, isn't it? Can't you see that joy springing up? Songs and hymns and spiritual songs. The joy of the Lord. Think of your favorite hymn. By the way, keep that hymn close and use that hymn in prayer. 
tomorrow. When you wake up tomorrow, whatever it is, you know, how great thou art, whatever hymn just makes you hum, use that hymn in prayer tomorrow morning. Spend a few minutes adoring the Lord before you pray for anything else, before you ask or have any uh, other component of your prayer. Sing in your mind, or out loud, better yet, a verse of that hymn. And watch what it does to your heart. (laughs) You can't not be joyful. You can't not be rejoicing. You can't not be praising God and giving Him thanks. Because the things that He has done, great things He has done, just ring in your heart and my mind. You know, crown Him with many crowns. You know, you just can't sing that and go, crown him with many crowns. It doesn't work. (laughs) It's not the reality of the power of the text. And this is the hard attitude. This is the rejoicing that we must exude all the time. And he brings this to us again in that present tense, or that future tense in the end to remind us. Because this is a prescriptive imposition. He has prescribed that we should live in joy and rejoicing. And so he brings this powerhouse imperative verb twice. Twice in this short little verse. To help us know that this is it. And it is an imposition. It's it's imposed upon us. It is a prescriptive imposition. It's not an option. You got to do it. You got to do it. Because you are saved. Because Christ has done everything for you. Because no matter what this earth brings. No matter the challenges. Jesus Christ is king. No matter what goes on, you are saved for eternity. You are sealed. You are a fellow inheritor of Christ. You will depart this earth and immediately be in his presence. What a joy. Our second point is in verse 5. And it is a purposeful injunction. Third point, excuse me, it's not our second, it's our fourth point. Third point was a prescriptive imposition. Fourth point in verse 5 is a purposeful injunction. A purposeful injunction in verse 5 where it says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Here again is another command, our third command in our first two verses of this section. And the force of this command is accompanied by a unique sentiment of gentleness. The the word gentle can also be translated as kind. One commentator notes that the uniqueness and the broadness of this word is impossible for us to fully get out in one English word. Another commentator notes, it is a contentment and a generosity towards others. The word is always focused towards others. It is a mercy or leniency of others' faults and failures. It can mean patience in someone who submits to mistreatment without retaliation. End quote. Another source says that it is yielding especially to others' rights and always to other people. It's yielding to legal rights and always to other people. 
It is a yielding of the nobility. This is not the yielding of a slave that is forced under the hand of the master. This is the one who is exalted, who is yielding himself, who is bringing himself down. It's what we saw in James uh, a few weeks ago as we looked at the lowly brother exalting his exaltation and the spiritually rich glorying in his humiliation it is those of us that are in high position because of christ the rejoicing that's to go on because of christ and in the lord bringing ourselves down bringing ourselves down to consider others in a powerful way this is a beautiful picture of philippians 2 3 to consider others more highly than yourself Martin Luther translates this as sweet gentleness and considerateness. This unique Greek construction here used only of Paul in this particular word gentleness. The unique Greek construction in that word gentleness is used only by Paul and the author of Hebrews. But since Paul wrote Hebrews, that would make sense to us, right? Well, anyway, I think it's right. So, the, the description of the Spirit of Christ, as some have noted, is viewed from a pagan perspective. This is, this is those of us who are believers and indwelt by the Spirit of Christ looking on the pagan world with an attitude of gentleness. This is the returning heart celebration. This is men and women of gentle, humble, Christian upbringing going into the bloodiest prison in America to minister to murderers. Putting aside what they have done recognizing that these are God's children. Horribly depraved, horribly fallen. And yet as we each understand and consider that, we have to realize that it is there but by the grace of God go I. Were we to act upon, dare I say, some of our own thoughts, we could be right next to those men. The darkness of man's heart is brutal. And we have each had some of those thoughts in our heart and mind. And yet, it is this gentle spirit that comes from Christ. And that's what we see next in the verse. Where the end of the verse shows how this is possible. The Lord is near. This isn't speaking of an onerous or forbearing presence of God threatening us in case all of a sudden we aren't acting gentle and we're harsh. I don't know if any of you ever find yourself being harsh. I hope you don't. Sometimes I do. I hate it in myself. And I think we all can understand that to a degree. But it isn't as if God is hanging over our shoulder or it isn't even a benevolent God always with us and always encouraging us. Rather, when it says the Lord is near, this is a settled knowledge 
of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we have that attitude. Because Christ is coming. When I go into Angola prison and we see all of the depravity of man and we see things that really are no different than we see on the streets in Mobile, they just happen to be behind bars, we understand that God may choose to save that one. God may choose to bring his spirit to one of these. And we may be the humble vessel who shows gentleness and who shows love and says, yeah, you did some things I don't even want to talk about. But God can love you. God does love you. And he can and will forgive you if you will but repent and give your life to him. That is the gentleness. And we do it because the Lord is near. And we must do it with our family. And some of our family are much more difficult to reach than are the most hardened murderers. Because we can talk to them. Some of our families, as we know, those of us that have unsafe family members, they can be pretty thick to try to get through to. But it doesn't matter. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. A command. It's not just for those of you gentle ones. It's not just as I look at some of the beautiful women, I say, oh, you all are so much more gentle than your husbands or than me. (laughs) And I'm so glad for that. No, this is a command that's written to every believer in the church. Every believer in Philippi, this great church, and every believer in this church. This is who we have to be. We are the ones who must express this gentleness. Every one of us, because the Lord is near. His return is soon. When we see more of the depravity, start reading 2 Timothy chapter 3. Start reading and understanding Matthew 24 and 25. And realize that the Lord is near, beloved. When we start seeing the things that are going on in the Middle East, in Israel... This is not confirmation. This is not necessarily biblical fulfillment. But it sure looks pretty close. The Lord is near. We must show the gentleness. We must show the forbearance. We must show this beautiful picture of sweet gentleness to all who would hear. And this is why the command is to every Christian... All are not gentle, but this command is to be so because Christ is coming. This is a a beautiful picture from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 22. The end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is something you need to go home and mark in your book and just read. Um, 1 Corinthians 9 at the end of the chapter, but verse 22 is kind of the pinnacle. If I pull it out of the context, it highlights this whole section from like verses 19 to the end of the chapter. But 1 Corinthians 9, 22 says, To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may, by all means, save some. We have to be able to relate to every person. We have to be able to relate to that young teenager whose pants are around his knees as he walks in the store instead of just being incensed and going that is just absurd pull your pants up let me help you pull your pants up 
Not that I have a problem with that, as you can tell. Um, but if I did, that would be wrong. <laughs> because I need to let my gentleness show. I need to show the love of Christ because the Lord is near. A prescriptive imposition, our third point. A purposeful injunction, our fourth. And our fifth point, a peaceful interaction. A peaceful interaction in verses 6 and 7, which read, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. A peaceful interaction. These are some of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament. I know many of you have memorized them. If not, I would encourage you to do so. The introductory clause in verse 6 is another command, our fourth in three verses. It is one of the most important commands in the Christian life. It is a command that I guarantee you, yeah, I guarantee you every one of you has failed at. Because we all at some times fail in this area and we become anxious. And with that anxiousness comes worry. And with that worry comes fear. These three are directly associated And they are intimately connected. When you have fear, you have worry and anxiety. When you have anxiety, you have worry and fear. Worry brings along with it anxiety and fear, always. And left unchecked, it paralyzes us. It will consume you if you allow this to go on. My father is a man who is just the dearest man who I love so much. And I praise God that he has opened his eyes to the truth of Christ. But my dad is often consumed by worry. Anything that's going on, I I don't tell my dad anything of significance because he just frets and worries over it. And my brother, who tells him everything, gives him plenty to worry about. And, And he just gets so worked up about it. I have a little of that. I remember... Several years ago, Karen went on a senior tour with Peter, and they went up to San Francisco from Los Angeles, because that was kind of a fun thing. She took each of the boys on this special trip for a weekend, and um, I would be working on my messages, and I would just start freaking out, start having thoughts of these horrible car wrecks or whatever. And I just, I, I couldn't work. I'd just sit there, and I'd start going crazy, And that's what it was. It was kind of craziness. It was anxiety. It was fear that built to worry that developed anxiety. And and it's something that I know is so common in so many people. I've counseled people in the church on this issue more than any other issue. More than marriage problems. Some of the marriage problems I've counseled people on have had at the root of them an issue of worry and anxiety. I praise the Lord that it's one of the issues that I've had the greatest success by God's strength and the power of His Word on this subject. But it's critical that we understand how important this is. I've had men who I have counseled who were years 
years and years that they served as Sunday school teachers. Powerful teachers. Men with just impactful proclamations of Christ. And they started worrying about what they said and, and, and whether you know, they were, people were responding to them. And, 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 they, and they allowed it to continue to grow. One of these men, it got so severe, he couldn't stand up in Sunday school and read the scripture because he was so paralyzed by fear to read before people. Now, some people have that. That's common for people to have trouble getting up in front of folks. But not for a man who's taught Bible study for a powerful way in years. But this is what happens. Uh, I know a pastor of one of the largest churches in Santa Clarita who started getting concerned about what the people were thinking about his message because people can be a little cruel about your preaching and they can come out and they can attack you about it. And he began to worry about that. And so his messages started getting shorter and shorter and they started getting fluffier and fluffier and more feel good. And he preached his way right out of the pulpit because soon he was doing 20-minute messages that had almost no scriptural content. And he couldn't get back to it. Fear, anxiety, and worry are horrible things. And yet the scripture says to be anxious for nothing. The root of this passage goes back to guess where? How many times have we gone back to one place in the Bible? Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we see this great text. I want you all to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. Put this scripture in bold print. If you write in your Bible, go to the front of your Bible and write Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. This is one of the most impactful scriptures that will help people with this particular issue of anxiety and does so in a powerful way. It doesn't take a, a great expert expositor or any tremendous giftedness. Just allow the people to read these verses in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Let's read them together. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. There it is. There's the subject of the rest of the verses. Don't be worried about your life. And when it boils down to it, this is what we're worried about. There may be facets of our life. There may be our children. They may be our wives. They may be our finances. They may be our health. But it's our life. This is our worry. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink. Now, very rarely do we have these kind of problems, particularly in our country. But we would say that these would be fundamental problems of our life. These would be more important than a horrific physical affliction that we were facing because without food or water, you're going to die in a very few days. So, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. 
But if God so clothed the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How do we deal with worry? We seek God. We place our focus on God. We seek His kingdom and His righteousness because guess what you can't do? We are brilliant people. There are people so much smarter than me in this church. So many amazing young people I had the chance to minister to at the University of Mobile. Guess what they can't do? They can't completely focus on two things at once. Oh yes, you can be thinking of two things, but if you're putting your heart and soul into seeking God and following Him, you can't be worried about yourself. Many of the things that I have in going through these issues and dealing with these men and women who have been going through issues of anxiety, one of the key things to have them do is to get into the church and start serving other people. Because you stop worrying about your problems when you start seeing some of the other things going on in the church. And it also shows you that you have value in the church. These verses are so pivotal. So keep them close. Because I assure you, as you start interacting with more and more believers, you are going to hear of worry coming up. And you have the answer. It's right there. It's right there, and it all springs out of this outstanding text in Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. Is there anything that's outside of that? Mm -mm. Everything is included. It is a negative that's brought forth to bring an all-encompassing positive perspective. There's nothing to be anxious for. There's nothing to worry about. Knowing every Christian's weakness How can this be commanded? Recognizing, as I've said, that I guarantee you every one of you have fallen in this area. Well, the answer is the rest of the verse. It is prayer. Exactly seeking righteousness. Seeking God for Matthew 6, 32. It is prayer. Notice the contrasting pair of nothing in the second part of the verse. It's everything. In everything by prayer. Everything that you've got, bring it to the Lord. You know, I I love to use resting example. I'm glad he's back. We missed y'all. Hope you caught a lot of fish. But he talks about how, you know, even when he goes to a parking lot, he prays for a parking space. If you think that's silly, it's not. Pray without ceasing. In all things, by everything in prayer and supplication. God is not taking Rusty's prayer request and every fifth or sixth time, boy, and saying, You know, I've been putting him back parking lot. I'm making him move a lot. I'm just going to move a car and make a spot for him. No. God is showing Rusty how to yield to the Lord's will. When the spot up front is available, he praises the Lord. When the spot in the back is all that's available, he praises the Lord. 
In all things, we praise the Lord. God is using our prayer. It is so vital for us to be in prayer on Wednesday night because it helps us align our will with God's. How many answered prayer requests are in this room? Roger, boom, prayer requests. Dave, boom, answered prayer. Over and over. We can go to each and every one. Every one of us has them. God is aligning our will with his as we bring everything to him by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, letting our request be made known. Four terms for prayer. All of the major words for prayer in the New Testament are right here. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and asking. (laughs) Adoration, thanksgiving, confession, this idea of prayer and bringing all things before God, supplication, and asking. This is is how we are to be praying. Every part of our prayer life, pleading with God, crying out to God, rejoicing in God, all of this is what we're to bring to Him, and therein to be anxious for nothing. Because we make it known to God. These words for prayer actually is, are also what Paul started Philippians. If you go back to Philippians 1, 3, 1, 4, and 1, 9, same words are right there at the beginning. So he wraps this all in a bow, and he tells us about prayer and all of these types of prayer. And of course, we pray to God. This is how we're not anxious. Because we know we're bringing our prayers to the one who's going to answer them. We don't know how. We don't know if we're going to have that parking spot. We don't know if he's going to heal this cancer. But we know that he's got this. And he's going to do exactly as is right and is best for us and brings him the most glory. And this is how we can praise him, even amongst horrific school shootings. Because God is in charge of all of it. And then in verse 7 is the result which begins with the peace of God. (laughs) Peace of God. There is no other peace. You know, when we're children, we love to run to our fathers or our mothers. But oftentimes when we're really scared, we'll run to our fathers. Our dog loves Karen so much more than me. But when she's really scared, she is beelining to dad. Is there anything that brings more peace to us than our Father, than God? Is there anything bigger than God? Nope, we can't even comprehend how big He is. This is an incredible peace. The peace of God that comes to us. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give, but I give to you that peace which none can understand. He says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus' peace. We do not know that peace outside of him, but in him it's perfect, and it's perfectly given to us. And this is the peace that surpasses all understanding because its origin is unknown and unknowable. It is the origin that created all that we will ever know, all that we are. This is a peace that gives us such joy. And after telling us the source and the depth of the peace, Paul gives us the function 
in the next part of verse 7. And it is to guard our hearts and our minds. The verse literally says, it will guard your heart. Future tense again. Because we're not doing it perfectly. But as we do, it will guard our hearts. It will guard our minds. Guard is a unique word here. Uh, That's a common verb in the New Testament. But this particular verb means to garrison. It, It means to keep strict control of. God will keep strict control of our hearts and minds. He will wrap his love around us. He will protect us and give us his peace. And it guards not only our hearts and our emotions, but it guards our minds and our thoughts. Our emotional reactions and our cognitive thought are all surrounded in the peace of God. And the realm of that guarding is in Christ Jesus. This beautiful picture for us of this prescriptive imposition and this purposeful injunction and now this peaceful interaction show us the glories that exist in Christ. Shows us the delight that is to be had in Him. Shows us the strength that we have not to fear or to worry because we bring everything to the Creator of heaven and earth. And in that, He returns to us his peace, his joy, his rejoicing, and the amazing blessings of reflecting a gentle spirit. I pray that as we think about these verses, we would recognize what an absolute delight they are and what a powerful motivator they are for us to go out and to speak to the world around us. Because this is what Christ has for us. And we get to show the world that they too need not fear nor worry nor be anxious because Christ is available and he desires that none should perish and he will by no ways, by no means cast out those who would come to him. So we go and we plead to people to come to Christ understanding that only he's saving them and that he's only saving the elect and that has no difference and no restriction on those to whom we're to go proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. pray these verses will strengthen us because that's why Paul's given them. And it's a delight to be with you and study them. pray that he'll just impress upon each of our, hurt, our hearts the power of this word.